our Father. It's us again. Your children at FFC. We are opening up 2 Samuel 2 and we need your help here. We are unworthy of the privilege to think deeply through this text. We are unworthy, but we are not incapable. You've tasked us with this glorious work. We want to cover David, but we don't want to stay at David. We want to get to the greater David. Help us to honor the author's intent, which ultimately is the Holy Spirit. And help us to receive from this text what you have intended for us to receive. This chapter will not return void. This chapter is for our sanctification. This chapter is a revelation of yourself. We grab hold of all of this and approach 2 Samuel 2. Father, I do feel inadequate to deliver something of such an estimable value. This text is infinitely priceless and your preacher poorly lacking. I desire to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I desire to awaken affections for Christ through this text. I desire to see your word impact your people. Oh, I have sinful desires. But these are not some of those. These are holy desires. Will you fulfill them now and so work out your plan through this local church? Amen. This is going to be a challenging book for me to preach. I knew it would be. First Samuel is a bit of a softball. Second Samuel, not so much. First Samuel, you have a lot of those classic stories. Second Samuel, you have a lot of unknown stories. I have about five or six theologians that are my favorites. I read after them when I preach any book of the Bible. Rarely do all five or six do work in the book I'm in, but always at least two or three have. They've already blazed the trail. When I chose 2 Samuel, it quickly became apparent that none of my normal go-tos have actually touched the book. The shoulders I usually stand on aren't here for me in this book. Although he is not one of my normal go-tos, I did discover that Alistair Begg preached the entire book of 2 Samuel. I listened to him talk about preaching the book of 2 Samuel. He started the book book and found himself in my shoes. Uh, Not a lot of guys he reads after had, had dealt with this narrative. He went on to say while in the middle of preaching 2 Samuel, he had to stop and take a sabbatical, (laughs) a three to four month vacation. This book took him out. I'm in week two and I'm already planning my four month sabbatical. (laughs) John Woodhouse wrote the gold standard commentary on 2 Samuel. He likes to remind preachers that you learn to run by running. And you learn to run faster by running in sand. Apparently, it's time for me to run in sand. There are two ways to say the title of this book. 2 Samuel and 2 Samuel. They say 2 Samuel in the States. They say 2 Samuel in England. If you hear me say 2 Samuel, just know I'm trying to be British. But with better teeth. That's... That's really uncalled for. I I rebuke myself. Elders, I'll save you the trouble. 
Not only am I going to have to do hard work in 2 Samuel, but you're going to have to do hard work in 2 Samuel. With some parts of the Bible, you can read it, and the gospel application is so clear. This isn't one of them. With some parts of the Bible, you can explain a bit and then apply a bit. This isn't one of them. With some parts of the Bible, it feels incredibly relevant. You're anxious, and it deals with anxiety. You're married, and it deals with marriage. You're facing trials, and it deals with trials. Some parts of the Bible, it feels incredibly relevant. This isn't one of them. Our text focuses in on the political intrigue of a tiny area in the Middle East 3,000 years ago. You're going to have to work hard and be patient with the passage that doesn't spoon-feed you little lessons of life every two minutes. But if you are patient, I promise, it will deliver some massive lessons about God's sovereignty that will help you sleep better and deal with frustrations better. You may think this text is far away and far removed from you. But what does Peter say? To the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. So to God, this text happened around breakfast time last Thursday. It may seem far away to you, but it's not far away to God. You can summarize the Bible in four movements. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. The entire Bible summarized in four movements. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Creation, God made it good. Fall, we broke it bad. Redemption, Jesus died that it might be good again. New creation, God ultimately remakes it good again. Where does 2 Samuel fit into these movements? It fits here. After the fall and before redemption. They are in the process of breaking it bad. And God is in the process of preparing for Jesus to come and make it good again. How is God doing that? He's implanting in the hearts of his people the desire, the yearning, the hope for a king. One who will come and make all the bad good. Let's set the scene and see how God's people are continuing to break things bad. God gave his people a king, Saul. Saul had incredible potential and did well to begin with. His first act as king was to rescue a city called Jabesh-Gilead. They were surrounded by a vicious warlord and about to have their right eyes gouged out. Saul came in in the nick of time and rescued the city. See, Saul came out of the gates quickly, but he didn't finish well. Time after time, Saul acted without consulting the Lord. He did some sinful stuff, and God rejected him from being king. God sent a prophet to anoint a new king, David. David was just a boy at the time, but grew into a mighty warrior. First Samuel relays the deadly game of cat and mouse. Saul the cat, David the mouse. David ran scared, but he held on to God's promise of a coming kingdom. God eventually killed Saul in a battle. He ended that deadly game of cat and mouse. David's archenemy, he is out of the way. 
David's political path to the throne just opened wide. What does he do at this crucial juncture? He solicits guidance. He inquires of the Lord, something his predecessor stopped doing. David lacked wisdom, so he asked of God. He did not take one step toward his rightful position without seeking the Lord. Verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And God said, To Hebron. God is still speaking to David. This is meant to remind you that for half a book, God stopped speaking to Saul. God told David to go to a precise city, Hebron. Hebron is 3,000 feet above sea level, so David travels up. Five times in the text, God said to go up. Go up where, God? David went up to Hebron five times. He's ascending. It up is being emphasized. He's going up topographically, but also politically. He's going up to the throne. The mouse is now going to be the king. The city Hebron is significant. It was a key city to patriarchs. Abraham settled in Hebron. He heard he would have a child in Hebron. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah are all buried in Hebron. Go to Hebron. What would that mean to David or to any Jew in that day? It links David's story to Abraham's. This is Abraham's town. This is connecting David to the promises made to Abraham. The original promise made to Abraham, that blessed promise is coming through a kingdom. The first sentence of the New Testament, Jesus is introduced as the son of David, the son of Abraham. David leaves Ziklag and he travels 25 miles to Hebron. He has his family with him. He has his 600 soldiers with him and their families. It's quite a caravan. At least 2,000 deep. While unpacking in Hebron, notice verse 4, the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David, king over the house of Judah. Now David has already been anointed king by Samuel. He's anointed a second time here by the tribe of Judah. The first anointing was private. The second anointing was public. The first anointing was hush-hush. The second anointing was loud-loud. The first was divine. The second was secular. David is king over Judah. But that's just one tribe. There are 12 tribes. The other 11 tribes reject David. They reject the king. The Hebrew people were made up of, of 12 tribes. And each tribe had a strong identity and very independent. When outside forces became too much, they put aside their differences and worked together for a bit. But there is no working together here. The 11 tribes up north were sometimes grouped together and called Israel. 
The southern tribe was large and remained independent, and they are called Judah. David is the southern king of Judah. Verse 4b. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let, the, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, David has wondered what happened to Saul's body and the body of his best friend, Jonathan. David has told the story. When the Philistines discovered Saul and his three sons dead on the field of battle, they stripped them of their uniforms and they nailed the corpse to the wall at Bethshan. How did they fasten the bodies to the wall? Sometimes they would do it with a pole through the rectum and out through the neck in front of the wall. I'm not sure if that's how they did it here. But it was a warning to all Israel, do not mess with the Philistines. When the men of Jabesh-Gilead caught wind of this, they were not having it. They had been helped by Saul earlier in the book. For 40 years, they had kept alive the memory of their debt to Saul. We have our right eyes because of him. At great risk, in the middle of the night, they took a special ops mission and removed the four impaled bodies, Saul and his three sons. They could not watch the disgraceful treatment of the royal family. Their act of bravery moved David. See, Saul's first act as king was to save the men of Jabesh-Gilead. David's first act as king was to commend the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Give them a medal of honor. David took it upon himself to contact this group of men who were about seven miles away. You honored the anointed one, and the Lord will honor you because of that. David is installed king down south. Now let's look at what's happening up north. Verse 8. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. Israel. Here's a body without a head. Israel is a defeated nation with a dead king. They need a, they need a head. They need a king. There's a body walking around with no head. When Abner hears David is anointed king in Judah, he acts quickly. He makes Ishbosheth king over the remaining 11 tribes. And by doing so, he's declaring war on David and he knows it. He's playing the part of kingmaker. But he's not the kingmaker. God is. He's the king faker. He puts up faux kings in opposition to God's king. This man, Ner, Abner, the son of Ner, Ner and Kish, the father of Saul, were brothers. This is a reminder of the family connection. Saul and Abner are first blood cousins. Abner was Saul's general, his second man. 
Abner takes his cousin's son and makes him king. Ishbosheth is crowned by the general, but not appointed by the Lord. The narrator lets us in on a little unknown fact. <laughs> not all of Saul's sons died in battle. There was one who remained, Ishbosheth. He was all that was left of the royal family. Now, where was this son when all the others were standing beside their father Saul in battle? Ishbosheth is the youngest of Saul's son, sons, and, and he hadn't taken part in the battle possibly because of his age. Well, possibly because he was weak. He just didn't have the stuff. His name in Hebrew means man of shame. We know he's a weak leader. That's revealed in the next chapter. He's a pushover. He's squishy. I call Ishbosheth Ishi because he's squishy. These words are used of squishy Ishi in our text. He was taken. He was brought, he was made. All are entirely passive. He's portrayed as a weak, passive figure. He's a figurehead king. The real power behind the throne, the real one pulling the strings of this puppet is Abner. Abner was the consummate opportunist. He saw an opening and, and he took it. Squishy Ishi is nothing more than a pawn on Abner's chessboard of seething ambition. Abner is in a long list of kingdom opposers in the military. Excuse me, not in the military, in the Bible. Probably some there too. Abner is in a long list of kingdom opposers in the Bible. God sets up his kingdom and Satan sets up his kingdom opposers. See, Abner is brazenly opposing the will of God. Abner knew David. Abner was the commander of Saul's army when Saul refused to go out and face Goliath. Abner was there when David killed Goliath. Abner was the one who, after the victory, brought David to King Saul's table for a kingly celebration feast. Abner fought many battles with David under Saul's command. Abner knew Saul was rejected by God and that David was chosen by God. Abner could quote the promise that David would be king. Saul could quote it, and so could Abner. And I'll prove it in the very next chapter. Abner says, the Lord has sworn to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to the house of David. Abner is rejecting David's kingship. Abner is opposing God's king. Abner is fighting against God's kingdom. It's safe to say that Abner felt the same about David as his former master. He wants him dead. Verse 11. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. David is, count, is crowned king of his own tribe. But it wasn't all roses for David when Saul died. Civil war broke out. The, 11, uh, the other 11 tribes misjudged the situation. The minority is maintaining the cause of God. The majority wants to go in another direction. Verse 13. And Joab, 
the son of Zerariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. This is going to be the first battle in this long civil war. David's men travel 23 miles from Hebron to a pool. And now this is, this is not a community pool with a diving board and a lifeguard and little kids splashing around. This is a hand-carved reservoir, 37 feet wide, 82 feet deep. You don't want to go swimming in this. David's men didn't arrive in their swimming trunks. They're wearing battle gear. And the purpose of this pool is to store water for the city. For the first time in the Bible, we meet the commander of David's army, Joab. Joab is the son of David's sister, Zerirah. Joab is David's nephew. Two kings. That means one too many. David and the king whose name doesn't fit in the crown. You have Joab and Abner, the two generals of the two rival kings. David ruling over one tribe, Judah. Squishy Ishi ruling over the rest. This, this meeting in verse 13 seems to have been prearranged considering the calm manner in which they all gather. And, and the stage is set. One army had recently been defeated by the Philistines. That's Saul's. And, and, and the other had recently been victorious over the Amalekites. That's, that's David's. Verse 14. And Abner said to Joab... This is Abner's idea. I want you to keep that in mind. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 for the servants of David. And they each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. This is a battle of representatives attested in ancient times. This was not uncommon. This was the case for David and Goliath. That was one-on-one. -on -one. This is 12-on-12. 12 12. Now, some try to frame this as some type of, of game, some jousting duel like a, a medieval tournament. But this is more severe than that. This is a gladiatorial fight to the death. A contest to see who the last man standing will be. Abner throws down the challenge. And I don't blame him. His men have home field advantage. This is located in the area of the 11 tribes. Who was the last man standing? Well, weirdly, there was no last man standing. They each killed one another simultaneously. It's bizarre, a synchronized act of mutual stabbing. From that day on, they called the pool Halkath Hazarim, meaning slaughter park. The, the first battlefield in this civil war is coined slaughter park. Why the exact number of representatives? Twelves. Why twelve men? Perhaps each claiming to represent the true 12, 
Verse 17. And the battle was fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, I don't know if this whole thing started out as, as peace talks by a pool. Let's have some drinks and have a little umbrella in your cup. I, I don't know. And, and maybe then it turned into a 12 on 12. But I do know that the little 12 on 12 contest broke out into an army on army bloodshed. Joab's army beat Abner's army to a pulp. Abner sees the inevitable and he makes a run for it. Verse 18. And the three sons of Zerarira, they were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. Now we know Zerarira, that's David's sister. We know Joab, that's David's nephew. Well, these are the rest of David's nephews, his sister's sons. They are his battle buddies. David's youngest nephew, Asahel, was a fast man. He was a runner. He's described as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. I hadn't raced a wild gazelle in a minute, but I think they're fast. These three loyal nephews are ruthlessly devoted to David. And they hated Abner with the passion of a thousand fires. Abner was one of the cats that led the army to chase the mouse. Abner is now opposing David's reign with his puppet king. These three would not touch Saul. He was the Lord's anointed. They would not kill Saul. But they'll split Abner's head open. They smell blood. They give chase. Verse 19. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. This guy Asahel had incredible agility and athleticism Abner had quite the jump on him, but Asahel eventually caught up. Abner's looking back. He, he, he thinks he recognizes the young man. He didn't want to fight. Turn aside, young gazelle. Turn aside. They're both talking and running at top speed. Don't force me to kill you. It's going to be too personal then for me and your brother Joab. It will take this whole conflict to another level. Asahel refused to turn aside, so Abner pulled one of the oldest tricks in the battlefield. He turned his sword backwards and at the same time stopped running. Asahel was going too fast. He couldn't stop. The momentum carried him straight into Abner, impaling himself on the sword. He was running so fast, he ran right up to the butt of the sword. It was a clever trick. The two older brothers were slower. 
They didn't have the wheels Asahel had. They arrived at the scene. A crowd is gathering and staring. They, 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 they push through the crowd and see their little brother lying motionless in a pool of blood. Joab falls down and tries to render aid to his little brother. Asahel, Asahel, can you hear me? Breathe, Asahel, breathe. Someone call a doctor. He's, he's bleeding out. Abishai, the oldest brother, grabs Joab. It's too late. He's gone. The rest of David army, David's army catches up and Joab wipes his tears and he says, Boys, let's get him. And the whole army is in hot pursuit. They have to be careful. This isn't their territory. This belongs to the 11 tribes. This isn't their backyard. Meanwhile, verse 25, the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. David's army, led by Joab, approached the hill. They know they're in a vulnerable position. Abner has the high ground, an ideal vantage point. And in the darkness, a familiar voice calls out, verse 26, Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? In other words, are we just going to keep killing each other? Don't you know that nothing good will come from this? Abner, that weasel, surprisingly, speaks common sense. No victory in a civil war is desirable. You consume one another, your own people. There are no winners in a civil war. When Israel fights Israel, Israel loses. Verse 27, and Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. Now let's take a step back here. I'm going to geek out on this for a minute. Some interpreters of this verse see it like this. Joab is saying, you know, if you, if you hadn't spoken truth to me from your high vantage point, I would have never stopped pursuing you. But you're right, there really are no winners in a civil war, so thumbs up, I'll catch you later. I don't think that's what he's saying. Ryan Kelly thinks it refers back to verse 14. Uh, the NASB nails it, the ESV missed it. It's talking about the stupid challenge to begin with. None of us would have lost anything if you hadn't suggested the gladiatorial fight in the beginning, Abner. This is what the NASB reads, verse 27. Joab said, as God lives, if you have not spoken, then the people of Judah certainly would have withdrawn in the morning, each from pursuing his brother. Now, I love this. It's almost playground-like, isn't it? Well, you started it. Verse 28. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. The whole army stopped in their tracks and ceased pursuing. Joab called them off the front lines. Call the raid off. We will live to fight another day. And I will avenge my brother's death another day. 
when Joab called the dogs off, the fighting ended. The cessation of hostilities, however, will not last. A little while and they will be at it again in battle after battle because the civil war isn't over. This is no lasting truce. The casualties, the count is like this. David's army lost 20. Abner's army lost 360. That's 18 times more people died in the first civil war battle from Abner's army than David's. Was David's army that much better? Just incredibly elite? Or was God working in the swords and the civil war to bring his purposes to pass? Verse 32. The tone changes here. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. Joab and Abishai stand over the body of their little brother. They weep and they mourn. It's a funeral in Bethlehem. I don't understand why it had to go down like this. Why did our little brother have to die? Nothing made sense in Bethlehem that day. But 1,000 years later, there's a birth in that very same place, Bethlehem. And that birth made this funeral make sense. That birth will make all weeping and mourning cease. That birth will make sense of it all. Now, church, that's the exposition. You visitors are like, all right, let's wrap it up. You church people know, that's just like half of it, all right? That's the exposition. How are we going to apply this story? What are the lessons that we're going to come away with? Is the lesson, don't stab people in the stomach. Or is the lesson, when running, don't follow too closely. I think we can do better. I've got four lessons for you. Lesson number one. David had a rocky road to kingship. Jesus had a rockier road to kingship. David had a rocky road to kingship. Jesus had a rockier road to kingship. David is king. <laughs> and it's been a rocky 13-year ride. It will be another seven years before he's king over all the 12 tribes. David will wait 20 years. In those 20 years, there's friends dying, mentors turning on him, living as a fugitive in a cave, lies and plots against him, and that's just until this point in the story. There are more rocks in his road ahead. Big ones, devastating ones. David is a rejected king. And a millennium later, there will be another rejected king. David's road was rocky. But Jesus' road was rockier. And I'll prove that to you. David came to his own tribe of Judah and they received him. Jesus went to his own and his own received them not. At least David's tribe accepted him. Jesus' hometown rejected him. 
David waited 20 years to be publicly crowned king and wear the crown. Jesus waited 30 years to be publicly mocked as king while wearing a crown of thorns. David's kingship was eventually recognized. Jesus' kingship, until the very end, was criticized. David's loyal followers stuck with him through thick and thin. Jesus' loyal followers deserted him in the very end. David was a fugitive for 10 years, but eventually went to the throne. Jesus faced, faced the death penalty of a fugitive and went to the cross. David went from Bethlehem to the throne. Jesus went from Bethlehem to the throne. But these two do have one more thing in common. David heard the voice of God all the way to the throne... And Jesus heard the voice of God all the way to the throne. Oh, wait. Except one time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a short time, Jesus did not hear the voice of God. The Father was silent when the Son called. Why? Because in that moment, the wrath of God that you rightly deserve for your sins was laid upon your substitute. Jesus bore in his body the penalty for your sins. And he did it not because you are good, but because he is gracious. Those of you that are non-Christians, you will. You will bow to this king, either now or then, but you will bow. Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Put your faith in Christ alone for your soul's salvation. That's lesson one. Lesson two. When the fulfillment of God's promise seems far, far off, keep anticipating when the fulfillment of God's promise seems far, far off, keep anticipating. David waits 13 years to become, the tri to become king of the first tribe and then 20 years to be the king of the remaining 11. I'll describe David's walk with God in one word. Waiting. I'll describe your walk with God in one word. Waiting. When the promise seems far, far off, you wait patiently. Wait for him to bring about his plans for you. Like David, Christian, you are chosen by God. It wasn't a random selection. He knew exactly where to find you in Bethlehem. A.W. Pink says it like this, and I quote, We never lose anything by believing and patiently waiting on God. But we are always made to suffer when we take things into our own hands and rush blindly ahead. End quote. Learn to wait on God and trust that he will unfold things in a way that brings himself the greatest glory. Well, Kyle, you, you don't understand. You don't have people making decisions against you. 
They connive and manipulate and lie, and they're ruining me. Friend, Saul made decision after decision against David. Abner made decision after decision against David. They lied against him, connived and manipulated people to think poorly of him, and the people believed them. Dear one, I want to say this gently but firmly. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God or not? Your long face and pity party says you don't. Now, let me give you a soft pillow on which to rest your head tonight. God sovereignly uses the decisions made against you. God sovereignly uses the decisions made against you. Close your eyes and nuzzle into that pillow. You'll sleep well. Both success and failure are in one way or another the outworking of God's purposes. So God sovereignly uses the decisions made against you. Secondly, God sovereignly uses the decisions you make. God sovereignly uses the decisions you make. When everything seems like it's falling apart, you have one responsibility. Do the next right thing. Do the next right thing that glorifies God. Show up to work on time. Be committed to the local church. Give generously. Kiss your spouse and read the Bible to your children. When it seems like the world is falling apart, do the next right thing. David did. He also refused to harm Saul. He refused to reach God's ends by ungodly means. David didn't do power plays. He did faith plays. Don't do power plays to get to a position at your job. David had no part in engineering his own rise to fame. Nearly everything David does in his early rule is an effort to heal the breach between his house and the house of Saul and thereby to heal Israel. When the fulfillment of God's promise seems far, far off, keep anticipating. Lesson number three. Everyone who holds office holds it by God's temporary permission. Everyone who holds office holds it by God's temporary permission. <laughs> Regarding people that hold office... Some of you need to stop being discipled by CNN and Fox News. Some of you are listening to the lips of Jon Stewart, Rachel Maddow, Ben Shapiro, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Jimmy Fallon, Joe Rogan, more than you listen to the lips of God. And friend, it's showing. I can't believe Saul is king. He wouldn't even go out and fight Goliath. I can't believe Squishy Ishy is king. Doesn't anyone with a brain see that he's a pawn? He's not the one pulling the strings. He can't even tie his own shoestrings. He's incompetent. And some in David's time spent their days talking just like this. Talking just like some of you. 
totally oblivious to God's sovereignty in it all. Totally oblivious that squishy Ishi is on the throne by God's temporary permission. One church father simply named Didymus the Blind wrote this comment about government, and I quote, We should not be worried if they do not act in the way appointed by God because he is in charge of them and will judge them accordingly. End quote. Whether you're in ancient Israel or modern America, remember this. After all the campaigning and all the praying and all the talking and all the debating and all the voting and all the jockeying for position, God's candidate is always elected. And don't ever forget, God can leave Saul's dead on the battlefield. Lesson number four. Are you, like Abner, acting against God's revealed will? And may the Lord help me with this and press this into your soul. Are you, like Abner, acting against God's revealed will? Something I always look for when reading an Old Testament passage is the FCF, the fallen condition focus. What is the fallenness in these people that translates into my fallenness? We're both fallen. We're both breaking it real bad. What is the mutual human condition that these ancient people share with us contemporary people? This is it. Abner is acting against God's revealed will. God's revealed will is that David be king. And Abner is setting up a faux king in opposition to God's king. He's setting up his anti-anointed one. He's not saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. He's saying, my kingdom come, my will be done. Abner knows the truth. And he's suppressing it. We share that same fallenness. We know God's revealed will. But we refuse to go along with it. When you sleep with someone whom you're not married to, you're doing this. You know God's revealed will, but you don't care. When you're doing a job that requires you to do something that isn't in step with the gospel, but you keep working that job anyway, you're saying, Squishy Ishi is my king, not David. Are you living your life knowing God's will, but not doing it? Opposing it by disobedience. You know God's pattern in the home. Who should lead? But you refuse to submit. My kingdom come. My will be done. You must take inventory of your life. Go into every room of your heart and every closet in your heart and search. Search for areas where you are disobeying God's revealed will. Will you pray this when we finish? Will you pray this when we finish? God, if I'm disobeying your revealed will in any area of my life, will you show it to me? Right now, will you reveal it to me? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father. 
We needed this text. We needed exposure to this text because of what it revealed about ourselves. And we needed exposure to this text because of what it revealed about you. We have been exposed and now we are responsible. Responsible for the light we've received.